I want to begin just by reading you two entries, uh, two diary entries. May 5th, May 5th, preached yesterday and today as usual at Kennington Common. About 20,000 hearers who were there were much affected. May 8th, preached this morning at Moorfields to about 20,000 people who were quiet and attentive and much affected. Went to public worship morning, uh, in the morning and at six preached at Kennington. Such a sight I have never seen before. I believe there were no less than 50,000 people there. I continued my discourse for an hour and a half. Um, and when I returned home, I was filled with love and peace and joy that I cannot express. Now, you'll not be surprised to know that that's not my diary. That's not my diary. I wish it was, but it's not. Uh, That is uh, two entries in the diary of the very famous evangelist from the 18th century, uh, George Whitfield. Now, uh, those describe two early attempts at open-air preaching. He was only 24 when he was preaching to crowds of 20,000 and in this case 50,000. And that was in the summer uh, of 1739. Now, uh, what is all the more impressive is that his biographer, a man called Dalimore, uh, describes Kennington Common to us. It's a part of London. uh, And he describes Kennington Common like this. Kennington Common was where the lowest of London citizens congregated in teeming numbers Here were vicious sports and drunken brawlings common. Here the harlot and the pickpocket sought uh, the victims of their trades. Um, And here the mob assembled, ready for any act of violence. So it's incredibly courageous what this young man was willing to do. Stand up in front of a very unlikely crowd of very, very unlikely converts uh, and tell them uh, the good news about Jesus. And the shock is that they didn't just come to be entertained. They didn't come to heckle. They didn't come to throw stones at him. They came to eagerly listen to what he had to say. Uh, And from what we know is that rather than just be there to entertain, be entertained, many thousands of people were converted gave their lives to the Lord Jesus, turned their lives around, uh, turned from their old way of life, began to live in a way that pleased God, so much so that the whole area of London was transformed. And it wasn't just an isolated incident. This was happening in in those years throughout the whole of the country, and in fact, on both sides of the Atlantic, in what we now call the Great Awakening, the Great Awakening. Now, that is not our experience today, though, is it, if we're honest? Uh, When we think about evangelism, telling people about the good news about Jesus, we actually have very different expectations. Uh, For us, we feel it's very difficult. It's very difficult. Uh, Because so many people today view the Christian message, the good news about Jesus, as something out of date and irrelevant, something narrow-minded and bigoted, something even that many people think should be opposed and completely gotten rid of. Uh, It seems that the task is so great. You know, there's so many in our our part of town. If you look around the numbers here, we're, we're a decent number of people here, maybe... 250 people in this room, 300 in total maybe, uh, with the children. Uh, But there's over 86,000 people in just East Belfast Borough alone. 
Uh, The task is enormous, and by contrast, we are so few. Uh, And so we tend to be very discouraged when we think about evangelism. We tend to think it's too difficult. Uh, It's it's something, even when we do pluck up the courage to to share something about our faith, uh, we get laughed at, ridiculed, mocked uh, at best, uh, and we fear rejection at worst. And yet, if God could work through a 24-year-old... Uh, in Kennington Common to bring such a remarkable uh, turning back to God, think of what he could do with 200 people speaking for him uh, in their own families, in their own neighborhoods, in their own workplaces. Think what God could do. I think that those diary entries from George Whitfield should be incredibly encouraging for us. But arguably even more encouraging for us actually should be Jonah chapter 3. Should be Jonah chapter 3. Because here we see arguably the most remarkable revival uh, in possibly history. That an entire city of thousands and thousands of people would all turn back to God, commit their lives to him, and the whole of the society would be transformed. That's what God can do. That's what God can do uh, through the speaking of just one man. Because in many ways, this book, although we often think that this is a book about Jonah and a big fish, uh, it's actually not a book, as we've said before, it's not a book about a big fish. It's not even a book about a reluctant prophet. It's ultimately a book about a merciful God who's on a mission to save. And he hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. He's still a merciful God who's on a mission to save. And if Kennington Common were uh, the people, the inhabitants of Kennington Common were a tough crowd, then I want to suggest that the inhabitants of Nineveh were an even tougher crowd of even more unlikely converts. We know three things at least about uh, the city of Nineveh first thing that we know about the city of Nineveh is back in chapter 1 verse 2. We know that the city of Nineveh was a wicked city. It was a wicked city. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. If you go to the British Museum today, there's a whole room dedicated to the Assyrian Empire. Now, most of the artifacts in that room and friezes and those sorts of things are all from a slightly later date, but they still give you a very good insight into what the culture was like uh, in Assyria uh, in, in the ancient world, a uh, culture of violence and brutality. Um, Tim Keller, who writes a, little, a very helpful little book on Jonah, uh, the prodigal prophet, writes this about the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was unusually violent. It slaughtered and enslaved countless people and oppressed the poor. It was renowned for injustice, imperialism, and oppression of other countries. Exploitation and abuse was also eating away at the fabric of Nineveh's society. This was a wicked city, characterized by evil ways and violence, as we see in our little passage. It was a wicked city. It was also a pagan city, a city renowned for having many, many gods that they worshipped. And they were ignorant, completely unaware 
uh, of the true and living God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Uh, They knew nothing about him. But in God's estimation, and here's the surprising thing, um, in Jonah chapter 3, verse 2, we see that in God's estimation, however, although this was a wicked city, although this was a pagan city, in God's estimation, this was also a great city, a great city, filled with people worth caring about in God's sight, filled with people worth caring about. And so God has gone to incredible lengths, incredible lengths, sending a storm, sending a fish, so that his uh, spokesman would come to this city, so they would get to hear uh, about him. Um, What we see then in this chapter uh, is if we are people who would long to see lives changed, people knowing peace and joy and forgiveness and hope that the gospel, the good news of Jesus can give, if we want to see that, see people in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, at the school gates where we stand, if we want to see people's lives changed, if we want to see our community changed, if we want to see our community changed into a community of, of peace and justice, then here are two ingredients that need to be in place. Two ingredients that need to be in place. The first then, we see God's messenger is sent. God's messenger is sent. First thing I want you to notice about the messenger uh, who is sent is the second chance that he gets. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message I give you. Uh, And you could be given for having a sense of deja vu here. If you come back to chapter 2, in many ways this is how the story should have started, but it didn't. God said, go back in chapter 1, and Jonah said, no. Uh, And he ran off in the opposite direction. Uh, And yet, God, uh, you might have expected, actually, uh, that that would be the end. That would be the end for Jonah. That given the fact that he showed himself to be so disobedient, so rebellious, so reluctant, that that would be it. God would wash his hands off him and say, right, I'm going to send someone else then in your place to go and speak for these people. He has just been too bit disobedient, too sinful to be any use to God anymore. And yet what we see wonderfully is that God pursues him and brings him back and continues to use him, gives him a second chance. Now that's not what we expect to happen in the workplace or in sport, is it? It's very different. If you are someone who is an employee uh, and you refuse to obey the instructions of your boss, if you are a player and you refuse to follow the instructions of your manager uh, on your team, sports team, then you cannot expect to continue in a job, can you? You can't expect that. And yet this is exactly what happens here. These words in chapter 3, verse 2, are words of incredible, undeserved kindness that God continues to give this disobedient, reluctant, rebellious servant a second chance. As we read through the Bible, we realize that the God of the Bible is the God of the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the hundredth chance. 
And if that were not true, then the reality is none of us would be here this morning, is it? God is a God who's incredibly kind and gives us a second chance. And God doesn't need Jonah. He doesn't need him. Remember, we've just read, uh, if you were here these last couple of weeks, the God of the Bible, the true and living God, is the God who has storms and sea creatures at his command. Uh, If he wanted to get a message to Nineveh, he could have, with a booming voice, spoke from the sky. He didn't need Jonah, doesn't need Jonah, and he doesn't need you or me, doesn't need us to change people's lives and bring people to come to know him. But the wonderful thing is that God calls each of us, despite our weakness, he chooses to graciously allow us to partner with him in the best job in the world, transforming lives and destinies and bringing peace and hope. God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us to be part uh, of this amazing work that he is doing to save uh, the lost. Now, often it doesn't feel like the best job in the world, but it is the best job in the world. A job that can bring great joy, uh, a job that will matter in eternity. I wonder, is that how we think of it? Um, And again, if you're here this morning and you feel as a Christian, you have mucked up once too often, once too badly, that God could no longer use me. My testimonies and tatters, uh, I feel that I've got nothing to offer. Uh, Again, you should be incredibly encouraged. I am incredibly encouraged as I look uh, at God's treatment of Jonah incredibly gracious, incredibly kind to him. Uh, And this should motivate us to take those little opportunities that we get to speak to a colleague. This should motivate us to invite uh, a friend or a colleague along on a Sunday morning. This should encourage us to invite along to an alpha course uh, that we'll be running periodically uh, over the next uh, year. God can choose to use us with all our weakness, with all our frailties, with all our disobedience, with all our reluctance. God can mightily use us to transform and impact lives for him. God is the God of the second chance and he uses messengers to speak for him. But I I want you to notice the message that he shares. I want you to notice it. Uh, It's a stark warning uh, there. In verse 4, on the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Uh, In the original, it's four words, yet 40 days Nineveh overturned. Uh, I don't think we're meant to understand that he just kind of walked around with a loud hailer and just said those four words over and over and over again. Uh, I think we're meant to understand, or those five words over and over and over again, I think we're meant to understand that that's like the tabloid headline, the summary uh, of his message. Because down in verse 9, we understand that he must have explained to them that this disaster that was coming was the result of God's fierce anger at their evil ways and their violence. They understood that, so he must have explained that. Uh, But this is an alarming message, an alarming message. Um, I do think uh, we're meant to see how alarming it is. It's slightly obscured in in English, but the word overturned is exactly the same word that's used throughout the Old Testament to to describe what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, the two famous rebellious 
um, immoral cities that God's judgment fell upon uh, and his fierce anger destroyed when he wiped them off the face of the earth, when they refused to repent. This is the same uh, pending disaster now that hangs over Nineveh. But I want to suggest that actually this is a message that is good news. Now, it doesn't initially sound like it's good news, but I want to suggest that it is good news. Good news. Because it's a message of delayed judgment. It's a message of delayed judgment. You see, from what we know from history and the historians, from what we know of the Bible, this was an incredibly vicious, brutal, cruel people. Uh, and that God would have been right to send his judgment upon them without any warning. He would have been right to do that. And yet, wonderfully, we read that God sends them this warning. And we're meant to understand this warning uh, in a similar way that we understand, you know, the, the, the red letter bill that you get? Now, I know that most of you are far too organized and have all your direct debits set up that you never get a red bill anymore. But I, I certainly have had a few of them, especially as a student. Uh, the, red, the red letter bill, right? If you don't pay this bill, uh, there's gonna be, it's going to be cut off on this date, your electricity. Now, the reason that stark warning is given is in order to spur you to action. The desire from the electric company is not to cut off your electricity. That is not their desire. Their desire is to spur you to action so that you respond, so that you escape this warning, what is described here. And that's exactly how we're meant to understand this sermon from Jonah. It is God's desire to send a warning to them, a stark warning, so that they would be spurred to action and do something about it so that they might escape. Uh, we often, there's a caricature of God that he's a, uh, and the God of the Old Testament is a, is a cranky, um, judgment-loving monster, whereas the God of the New Testament, well, he's sort of a, a fluffy, gentler, kindler God. But that's, that's not true. The God of the Bible is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is a God of fierce justice, because he cares how you treat me and I treat you. He cares. And he's a God of tremendous mercy and kindness. And I think we see exactly that right here. Now this message of future impending judgment is something that is incredibly unpopular in our culture. Uh, any notion of future judgment uh, is something that many people rail against and get angry about uh, in our world today. You just have to think of a couple of years ago when Stephen Fry at his outburst, uh, when thinking about God, uh, when he could say, how dare God judge me? How dare he do that? Um, the notion that is that judgment is connected with God being a tyrant, cruel and evil, and if he's like that, I want nothing to do with him. Um, especially in our culture that, that so prizes tolerance, that so prizes uh, inclusion, any notion of, of judgment is, is out of the question. But again, I want to suggest that, that judgment is a good thing. God cares how you treat me and I treat you and will hold us accountable for that. If you have been mistreated, really, really mistreated, you will actually find that a very comforting thought. 
that no one ultimately will ever get away with it. They will always have to give an answer to a just and fair and righteous God. Maybe you're here this morning and you do still find this notion of future judgment as something medieval, vicious, and repellent. Um, Can I just suggest that you just pause just for one moment um, and remember that the most loving, the most compassionate man who ever lived was the one who spoke most regularly about future judgment and the reality of hell. Jesus said things like this, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better that you enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Mark chapter 9. Jesus was clear that there is a real danger right there. There's a real danger. But his desire is that you don't go there. Listen to the warning. Do something about it. And he has provided an escape. He himself took the penalty for all our cruelty, for all our mistreatment of other people, for all uh, the ways that we've rejected and ignored the true and living God and lived with ourselves at the center of life. Jesus has taken the penalty for that so that we might escape the judgment. The desire is always that we listen to the warning. These warnings are always uncomfortable, uh, often shocking, but they're designed to spur us to action. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you haven't committed your life to Jesus yet, uh, I want you to consider just this imaginary scenario. And I want you to ask your question, who am I most like in this scenario? I want, to imagine, I want you to imagine three patients, three patients They've all been chain smokers for over 30 years. They've all been uh, referred to uh, a consultant with suspected heart disease. They go to the consultant each in their turn, and they're all given the the regular test, the ECG and the blood test and all those things. Uh, And uh, the results are back, and the news isn't good. They're all called in in turn, and the same message is given to each and every one of them. I'm sorry, the news isn't good. You have heart disease. If you do not... Uh, undergo major heart surgery, you will be dead within a year. I want you to imagine patient number one reacting to that, being outraged and saying, how dare you criticize me for failing to stop smoking and sabotaging my own health? Is Is that really what you're saying? I came here for some encouragement, some reassurance. I think you're the cruelest doctor I've ever met. And storms out. Imagine the second patient then, same news, heart disease, need surgery, or impending death. Imagine him saying, how dare you criticize my heart? How dare you criticize my heart? Um, There are other smokers out there who are far worse than me. Um, And yet, you think, you don't even know me. You don't even know me, and you're, and you're saying that, I think you're the most arrogant doctor I've ever met and storming out. Or the third patient who sits for a moment after hearing the news in perfect silence and says, I know I failed to stop smoking. Um, I'm a bit shocked, to be honest, to hear that the diagnosis is so bad. But can you tell me a little bit more about that life-saving operation? The question is, which patient 
are you most like? Doesn't it make sense to be like the third patient, be willing to listen to the uncomfortable warning in order to do something about it and escape the disaster that's described? Or perhaps you are a Christian here this morning and you're convinced intellectually that there is judgment in the future. Yeah, that's true. God will hold everyone to an account, and that's right. Yep. I believe there's a heaven. I believe there's a hell. Um, Praise God, because of Jesus, I'm going to heaven. Great. But it doesn't spur you to action either. It doesn't. If we believe this to be true, if we believe this to be true, really true, won't we be the first people who want to overcome a bit of social awkwardness to tell people clearly, sensitively, truthfully and boldly and urgently that there is hope in the face of a holy God. I came across this quote this week again. You've probably heard it before. Um, Penn Gillette is uh, of Penn and Teller fame. Uh, it's a f- quite a famous quote. It's from a YouTube clip he uh, recorded not so long ago. He said, I've always, sir, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't evangelize. Now, he's a famous atheist. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward... How much do you have to hate someone to not evangelize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I just tackle you. You get the idea? If we really believe this to be true, won't we be the first people to tell others that there is a heaven to be gained and there's eternal judgment to be feared? There first, God sends, uh, God's messenger is sent. And in light of the great commission of Jesus, you now are one of the messengers that he has sent. He's given you the message of the gospel and the question is, are you willing to go? Are you willing to go? Because here's what's at stake. God's message, messenger is sent. Second, God's mercy is shown. God's mercy is shown. How might you have expected this message to be received? Especially from a foreigner. Uh, and a foreigner possibly smelling of fish vomit. Okay, so he's not, like, this is not uh, a very likely uh, candidate to, to attract a crowd. Uh, Would you expect him to be mocked, ridiculed, beaten, imprisoned? I think to get a flavor of what's going on here, imagine traveling to Islamabad today and marching into the middle of the town square, the city square, in front of the main mosque and standing on your little soapbox and speaking out with a loud hailer that the God of Israel calls you to repent Put your trust in him or you will face a judgment, future judgment. How do you think that would go down? 
I don't, I don't think you're... This is incredibly courageous. Jonah may be a reluctant prophet, but he's not a false prophet. He courageously speaks the truth when he gets there. Um, but instead of being beaten or imprisoned or even mocked and ridiculed, what happens? Look at verse 5. The, Ninevite, the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, all of them, from the greatest to the least, and put on sackcloth. This is a notoriously cruel, barbaric, proud, violent, aggressive people. And yet what happens? They humble themselves before God and accept the testimony of of Jonah from the greatest to the least. And we've got this beautiful description, uh, this really poignant picture uh, in verse 7 where the king himself hears the news. And what does he do? He does two things. Number one, he gets off his throne and sits down in the ashes. Second thing, he takes off his royal robes, symbols of his power and his dignity and his status. He sets all them aside and puts on sackcloth, a symbol of mourning uh, and the, the, the dress of a beggar. It's a wonderful picture of humility realizing that the, the, the message is true, realizing that my need is great, uh, and responding. In verse 10, we read this, when God saw what the people did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he threatened. Do you see, the desire for the warning, the desire behind the warning, alarming and stark as it was, was so that they would respond, respond by turning back to God and putting their trust in him. And and that's what this people did. And so if you and I want to experience the mercy of God ourselves, or if we want to be those people who help others to experience the mercy of God, guide them through it, Show them what it practically involves. Jonah chapter 3 is incredibly helpful. It shows us that there are, there are four stages. There are four stages to turning back to God. Four movements, as it were. The first stage then starts with believing God's word. Believing God's word. The Ninevites, Ninevites believed God. Notice that they don't believe Jonah. It's not just that they believe Jonah, but they believe God. They recognized in the warning to Jonah that standing behind that was the very word of God to them. And I think most of us have had that experience, certainly if if you've been a Christian. There's been this moment when information has turned to sensation. You realize that 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 is true. That is true for me. And you feel the, the weight of your own failure. And you've caught a glimpse of the mercy of God. And that is really true. That's what happened for them. They first believe God's word. God has the power to open blind eyes, to soften hard hearts, and convince people of their own need for him. That's where it starts. They believed God's word. Second, they sorrow over sin. Sin is that little Bible word with I in the center. Uh, and it describes, it's a good description actually, it's living life with me at the center. Uh, ignoring and rejecting God and being willing to mis- mistreat other people along the way. 
And they sorrow over that. They declared a fast and put on sackcloth. We lose the impact of that. We don't wear sackcloth today. That's not something you do in the 21st century in Northern Ireland. Uh, But it's a symbol of, of mourning. It would normally happen when you lost a real close loved one. You would show your sorrow uh, setting aside any, any hint of flamboyance and self-centeredness because you're focusing on the loss of another. Here they're showing not their, their grief over their sin, their grief over the way that they have ignored and rejected God, their grief uh, at the way they've mistreated other people. Starts with believing God's word, sorrows, repentance, sorrows over sin, and then repentance is always seen in action. It's never just thinking new thoughts. It's a willingness to turn your life around and to change. Um, Here we read that they give up their evil ways uh, and their violence. These are the things that they were famous for. Now they're willing to give those up, turn away from that old lifestyle. Uh, The brothels and the temples to other gods are all boarded up. uh, And they've Do not any longer, as the historians tell us, cut off the noses and ears or skin alive uh, the prisoners of war. They abandon those ways, turn to live in a way that pleases God. Fourth, they set their hope in his mercy. They set their hope in God's mercy. Verse 8, let everyone call urgently on God and let them give up their evil ways. Sorry, verse 9 Who knows, God may relent uh, and with compassion turn from his fierce anger that we will not perish. Uh, There's a famous uh, poet, German poet, Heinrich Hein, who famously wrote, God will forgive me, that is his job. Notice here how different their response is. Not a hint of presumption. We We don't even know if God will forgive us, but we'll throw him, we'll throw ourselves at his mercy. And wonderfully, we see verse 10, that God, how does God always respond to repentant sinners? Always giving kindness and mercy and relenting from the disaster that was threatened. They didn't know, they didn't know that uh, God would have mercy upon them. They were not sure. But we know, we know for a fact, positively, that God will forgive He will show mercy. Why? Because we stand this side of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He sent his son to bear the penalty for all all the ways we have mistreated other people, for all our selfishness and pride and cruelty towards others, for all the ways we have rejected God. Jesus took the penalty for all of that on the cross so that we might be forgiven. And God now has promised if we turn to him and put our trust in him and ask for forgiveness, it will be granted. 1 John 1 verse 9 famously says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We can know for a fact that God will forgive rebellious, undeserving, reluctant followers like you and me. We can know that we can be forgiven. So if you are someone who longs to see your, the lives of your friends and family and neighbors and classmates and colleagues changed, here are the two ingredients. Number one, 
see yourself as a messenger sent to speak to them. Yes, you will not do it uh, adequately. You will stumble and fall and make mistakes. But wonderfully, God uses weak and reluctant servants to great effect for him. First ingredient, God sends messengers and you and I are among that number. And then second, we need to pray for God's mercy. We need to pray our socks off that God will work. Uh, because it will not happen without his intervention. You and I could never have good enough arguments. We could never be persuasive enough so that it will have that, this kind of effect in the lives of people and in the, in the working of a community. But with God's power, with God's mercy, it can have this effect. And so we need to be a prayerful people. And if God can work through Jonah... Um, three centuries at least before the Lord Jesus. If God can work through a 24-year-old uh, in 1739 in London, then he can use you and me in 21st century in Belfast to make an impact for him. Let's pray that he would do that.